Please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. We are looking at a look at the entire chapter of Daniel 1 this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, this is your word, and it is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. Would you give us eyes that see that light? Would you give us hands and feet that follow after it? Would you give us hearts that submit to it? That we may know you, O God. We may know your ways. That we may trust you. That we may be glad in you. No matter how dark the day, no matter how difficult the moment. Do this, O God, by your grace in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 1 leads us to consider a man who finds himself in a trying time, a difficult day. You probably know someone who, through whatever circumstances, whatever, for whatever reason, they have abandoned a claimed faith that they once used to make in Christ and are now living as if that has no claim on them. You know, the Bible, the old Bible word for such a move would be to apostatize. Today, we use a different word that is to deconstruct. It's more positive, something as if, and it's given many reasons for it are given. Sometimes it is because someone has endured such severe trial, such severe testing, that it causes their faith to be shaken. Others merely are treated poorly, and because of that, they now abandon Christ because if his people act this way, then surely Christianity isn't something for them. But whatever reason, there are reasons all within that, that, that framework, but for whatever reason, they abandon Christ. And often when they are giving their story about why they have deconstructed, they will often put it all in in positive. They are coming to this truth. They are coming to this idea that it's nothing. What they used to believe, the way they used to live, what they used to practice isn't really true anymore. Now they are doing something positive. Now they are finding what's true for them. Now they are doing something courageous. But it, it takes no courage whatsoever to follow after a world and to engage and to follow in the steps of a world that is walking in the opposite way of what we find in Scripture. It takes no courage at all. What we find in our text is a a young man who shows us what courage looks like, who has every reason to deconstruct his faith along with what may be everyone else with the exception of a few friends who have been taken captive with him. And what we find is that in the face of his trials, in the face of all of his circumstances, rather than deconstruct, he digs in. And he commits himself to the Lord. And what we want to look at this morning is not only the faith of Daniel, although we want to see that, We want to see what causes Daniel, what encourages him to to be so courageous in his faith. And then we also want to look at what shape his courage takes. So look with me in verses 1 to 8. We are going to read verses 1 to 8. And here we are going to see unpacked Daniel's, Daniel's faith. 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed, that's King Nebuchadnezzar, instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish. They were good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and the three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among these, uh, those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. He gave Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed, resolved, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. What we see laid out there in the first verse is that Daniel in 605 BC, he is taken along with many others as an exile and a captive to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar comes, we are told in the, Daniel records, in the third year of his reign. Now, if you have a cross-reference, you might take you to Jeremiah chapter 46. And there we find that Jeremiah says that it is in the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign. Daniel says it's in the third year. Jeremiah says it's in the fourth year. And some have looked at that and said, here we have a discrepancy in the Bible. But rather what we have is two different dating systems at work. In Jerusalem and in Judah and as in many parts of the world as you and I do now. During that first year of their reign, that is counted as year one. In the second year, that's year two, and so on and so forth. But in Babylon, where Daniel spent 70 plus years, he is writing this book at the end of his lifetime. In Babylon, that first year of your reign as king isn't considered year one. It is called your succession year, your year of accession to the throne. You have ascended to the throne in that first year. And every year after that, is then marked in sequence. So you have your accession year, and then you have year one, then you have year two. And so what we have here is not a conflict, but rather what you have is corroboration. These men are using two different systems, and it would make sense. Jeremiah, who is living in Jerusalem at this time, gives us the Jewish dating system. And Daniel, who's writing at the very end of his life when he has been using the Babylonian and the Persian dating system, his entire more not his entire life, but everything except the first few years, he uses the Persian system, the Babylonian system of dating. And so it's not a discrepancy, it's rather confirmation. But 605 BC is the first of three waves of exiles that are taken captive from Jerusalem to Babylon and spread throughout the Babylonian Empire. And Daniel finds himself far from home. We read there that he is 
a young man. He would have been a young man of the age of 13 or 14, possibly 15 years old. That was the age around which young men were entered into scribal training. And that's the age when he enters in. He is young, we are told. He is good-looking. They have to be without blemish. They need to be good-looking people. Not only good-looking people, they need to be smart. And Daniel apparently fits all of these categories. He is removed from the care of his family, forcibly taken to another country. And not only taken to another country, but taken to another country that is mocking and mocks everything that he has believed. And you see this in those verses where Nebuchadnezzar takes some of the articles of the house of Jerusalem and he takes them back to Babylon, the land of Shinar, and he puts them in the house of his God. There was no clearer way of saying, we are the champions now. Whatever trophies you thought you had, whatever greatness your God may have had, they belong to us now. And so why wouldn't they mock the God of Israel? What do you think Daniel is feeling at this time? Fear, uncertainty, anxiety. Can you imagine the anxiousness that he is feeling day after day? Uncertain of what's coming? Perhaps anger? I mean, he, he watched his homeland torn apart. He has been ripped away from his family, used now as a bargaining chip, hopeful to be able to serve this Babylonian uh, empire. Imagine he would be angry, anxious, fearful, uncertain, all of those things and more. More than this, as an exile, he is under constant pressure. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but Daniel, we, we are told... The, the, he is taken along with those artif- articles of the house of God in verse 2. He is taken and carried into the land of Shinar. There's a reason we are told it's the land of Shinar here and not Babylon. Daniel is, by using this title, the land of Shinar, he is trying to tell his Jewish readers, you need to go back and look at what this land of Shinar is. And back in Genesis chapter 10, you see this man named Nimrod who lives in defiance against God. And then in Genesis 11, you have the Tower of Babel built in the, in the land of Shinar. This, this tower which is built in pride against God. We will make it to heaven on our own, thank you. We are going to build this temple, I'm sorry, this, this tower and make a name for ourselves. You see the same land of Shinar being referenced later in Zechariah as a, the place of future rebellion against God. Babylon is a city, a country, a a culture of intense wickedness. And even at the end of Daniel's life, though he has spent decades upon decades now in Babylon, he has not lost this sense of the land he is living living in. He has not lost a sense of its wickedness, of its depravity, of its evil and corruption. It is perverse. It is disgusting. Babylon, in many ways, reflects what we see our own country quickly becoming. Yet Daniel is being trained in the ways of Babylon. He is being taken now to be trained in in the very house and in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. The Chaldeans refer to either a, a people group, that is, Nebuchadnezzar was a Chaldean by ethnicity, but it can also refer to a special select group 
within the Babylonian Empire. And it seems that that's what this is referring to. He is being trained in the ways of this people. He is being trained in the ways of academia. And he's under constant pressure. The goal here is assimilation. And you see that in the very names that are given to these men. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is like our God. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. He has helped me. He will help me. But now, each of the names that they are given, they reflect some pagan deity of Babylon. They are given new names, new identities. There are a lot of reasons people take names today. We're given names. Think of those coming into our country. You can look back on, on times like uh, uh, where, where our country had uh, Ellis Island in New York as people were coming in, immigrants were coming in from Europe. Often they would adopt a new name. Sometimes a name that would allow them to fit into the host culture. Sometimes they changed their name just enough so that it was more easily pronounceable by those who were coming, by, by those in, amongst whom they were going to be living. Sometimes people choose names as they enter into our country because they like the way it sounds. I'll never forget there was a, a college, there was a young woman, a student, she was from Asia, and she chose the name Blueberry because she liked the way it sounded as an English word. And so her English name was Blueberry. In our country, in our country's history, slaves were sometimes given new names. And it was a mark that they now were under new authority, new leadership, that their lives no longer belonged to themselves. All of that is at stake here and more. Certainly these names would have been more easily pronounceable by those in Babylon. But now these new identities, this is a a declaration. These new names are a declaration. You belong to us now. Your old identity is dead. This man is now alive. Your old loyalties to your old God he is, are gone. Now you must have new loyalties. Daniel and his friends are under constant pressure. And yet we read in Daniel verse 8, chapter 1, that he purposed in his heart. Or we might say he firmly resolves, he determines not to be defiled, not to defile himself with the king's delicacies, with the king's meat and wine. You know, up, up to now, all of the verbs have been, uh, regarding humans, have been about what Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians have done. That is, Daniel and his friends and the Jewish people, they have been passive in this. They have been the recipients of whatever else anyone else has done. But now, for the first time in the book of Daniel, verse 8, we read that a Jewish person is doing something. Daniel in essence, is taking the pen of his life. He is not going to be coerced to give away his faith. He is now resolving to do something. He is not going to be defined as a victim. Rather, he will define himself by his faith in the Lord. And he resolves to write the story of his life in a way that honors God. And Daniel here is putting his life in in jeopardy, putting his, his future in jeopardy. Think of the cost that Daniel may have to pay as a result of this decision not to defile himself, not to eat of the meat of the king and of the drink of the king. 
Well, on one, he's giving up meat here. And Men, just think about that for a moment. Of all the things you might be asked to do, what if you were told to follow the Lord, it meant you could no longer have meat? That cheeseburger? That bacon? That bacon-wrapped cheeseburger? Whatever, you know... It, Think, think of never eating another bite of meat as an act of determination to follow God. Not only that, he's refusing to eat the king's meat, the king's drink. This is an act, it could be interpreted an act of treason. This is putting his own life at stake. More than this, Daniel is setting himself apart from everyone else. I'm not going to eat the meat and drink of the king. I'm not going to do it. And he's already distinguished because he is a Jewish person, because he wants to follow after God. And now he is literally marking himself out to everyone else. Every time they go and they are eating... He is distinguishing himself. He is separating. More than this, this could be considered a bad career move. How is he going to be able to advance if he doesn't fall in line? Ultimately, Daniel appears to be willing to starve himself even to death. What we see is that Daniel, he, he is, this isn't a rash or brash decision. This is a, a moment that he has counted the cost of. What will it take for me to follow God here? It means I will not eat of this. I will not drink of this. He has counted the cost and he has found God worthy of that cost. Brothers and sisters, this is what you and I are called to do every day. We must count the cost of what it looks like to follow Jesus. It doesn't happen by accident. We don't don't coast into this kind of commitment whether it's school or work, you will have to count the cost. In the hallways, kids, teenagers, in the hallways between classes this week, you will count the cost. Men and women, you go to work. In the break room, you must count the cost. As jokes are being passed around and told, you must count the cost. What does it look like to follow Christ in this moment? Many of you, parents, grandparents, you may have children or grandchildren that are holding it over you that if you want to have a relationship with them, you must affirm them in everything that they do. You must count the cost. Certainly our love ought not to be tied to that, but brothers and sisters, what will it cost you to follow Jesus? And this raises questions. What was it about the king's meat and wine? It certainly could have been that they didn't fit the dietary restrictions. In fact, it almost certainly was the fact that these, this meat, this drink, didn't fit the dietary restrictions. 
But it's hard to see that that was the issue. You see, all of Daniel's life right now, from the clothes he wore to the day, how he spent his days, everything about his life, he is breaking the law. He is not in control of. He must work on the Sabbath. He must do whatever he is called to do, wear whatever he is called to do. And while there are regulations in the law regarding food, it doesn't quite make sense why wine would be restricted. More than this, in both Ezekiel and in Hosea, God promises his people before this event ever takes place, he promises them that he is going to send them into captivity in a foreign land where they will be defiled by the food that they have to eat. Merely living in captivity in Babylon was to be in a state of constant uncleanness, a state of constant defilement before God. So it's unclear how merely eating this meat made him more defiled. More than this, it is not clear that if he would have been, that by eating vegetables and by eating the breads, uh, by not eating meat, that he would be any more clean. The food laws are still covering that. He still would have been unclean and defiled by that. Another possibility is that this meat or this drink would have been offered to idols, and that's most certainly true. Nebuchadnezzar absolutely, in worship of his God, would have had a portion of the meat, a portion of the drink, always offered up to his God. But make no mistake, that would have been true of anything that Daniel and his friends ate. Others suggest that it was because Daniel was trying to eat healthy. A few years back, a prominent pastor came up with a book, The Daniel Diet, as if Daniel here is proposing a way for us now to be healthy and wealthy and wise or whatever, that Daniel here has got the way forward for health. That's not at all what's at stake here. I think, and this is a guess, but I think that the most likely reason for Daniel's resolve not to eat the king's food and not to drink the king's wine was because to do so in his context and in that, in that culture, it was a sign that you were accepting two things. One, that you were now going to be subservient and dependent upon this one. And two, it was a mark of your loyalty to him. That is, it, this, meat, this meat, this food, this drink, it was a sign that you were having this covenant uh, relationship with one another. That now you are committing yourself, loyalty, body, heart, soul, and mind to this person. He provided it, now you eat it. And Daniel said, that is a bridge too far. The Nebuchadnezzar, he may rule my life. He may tell me what I can do, where I can go. He may tell me all these other things, but he will not have my loyalty. He will not have my heart. What we see here is that Daniel is unwilling to be subservient, unwilling to be loyal to any other than the Lord. And in this, Daniel models for us what wisdom looks like. He models the way of wisdom as an exile, a stranger in a hostile land. We see this. Verses 8, he resolves himself not to eat of this meat, of this drink. And then verses 9 onward, Look, read with me. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. 
And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your face looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat of the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. The first thing Daniel does in verse 8 is he makes an appeal to the chief of the eunuchs. That is, to the, to the guy who's over them all, to the head honcho right under Nebuchadnezzar. He's appealing to that guy. And that guy, out of fear of, of endangering himself, what would happen to me if I allowed you to do what you want and you look worse than everyone else? That puts me at risk. I will answer to King Nebuchadnezzar. I will lose my life. No thank you. And Daniel doesn't give up. But then he goes on and he asks the steward, the man underneath that guy. And he appeals to him. And do you see what Daniel does? He gives him a test. Look, let's do it for 10 days. That's 10 days. How long is 10 days? That's such a short amount of time. It's just long enough to see if this is working, but not long enough that it's not, that it's not reversible. And if, and if it works, if I'm better, if we are better, well then by all means, maybe that's the way for us to go. And so that guy, he's weighing the options. Well, on one level, maybe it works, and now I can succeed. And if it doesn't work, well, it's only 10 days. We can, I'll feed him extra, and we can make up for it. It'll be fine. Daniel navigates this situation with wisdom. You read there in verse 8, Daniel is resolved. He is determined in his heart, purposed in his heart, not to defile the king's meat. And you might expect Daniel to then start acting the way so many other people do. If we want to stand for truth, what does that look like? Start yelling, demanding special attention. Boldly setting his jaw this far and no farther. Daniel doesn't do any of that. He, he asks. There is humility there. He is determined not to defile himself. And you would, you would almost guess he doesn't ask. He tells, I'm not going to eat this meat and you can't make me. But no, he asks. And then when that request is denied, he asks someone else. And he creates a test. Brothers and sisters here, this is wisdom. This is wisdom. And as a result of acting wisely, you see in verse 21, after all of the success of this, we read, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. That is, for 70 years, through various empire exchanges, first with Babylon, then with the Medo-Persian Empire, then with Persia, overthrow after overthrow, and he lands with Cyrus. And he, he is with Cyrus for several years as a very old man. And this goes back to what we read in Daniel chapter 12. Those who are wise 
Verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Do you not see the wisdom of Daniel? Do you not see how he is living in light of who God is? How that shapes how he is going to act? And yet he is wisely determining, restricting, measuring his behavior? Brother, sister, if you and I are going to honor God in the way we live, it is going to require wisdom. Our times are becoming increasingly hostile. Openly hostile to the way of Jesus. Especially in the way that he calls us to live with our bodies, with our money, with our minds, with our lives. It isn't just considered antiquated. It's considered not just irrelevant. It's considered dangerous, harmful, oppressive. How are we to live in this land? It will require wisdom. And that is what you and I must pursue. Wisdom. What you don't see Daniel pursuing here is relevancy. Daniel doesn't say, you know what I really need to do, is I really need to be relevant to the Babylonian culture and adopt everything that they adopt and they kind of worm my way in and eventually I'll bring them back. I'll be able to show them the way of God. That's not the way of Daniel at all. He doesn't consider relevancy an option. And if you and I, in churches today, if we make relevancy our greatest goal, then we will find ourselves relevant to the world and irrelevant to God. We will be forced to care, forced to decide, and be resolved to follow after Christ, or be conformed and assimilate to the world. But to do this, we will need wisdom. Wisdom to honor God at work when your company begins to require you to join in and celebrate what God himself condemns. What will that look like? I was talking with a pastor, this man in his church. Every year, during Pride Month, his company holds a special celebration. And every year, one of the men in his church, because of his convictions, and you're forced to participate if you're, a part of the country, if you're a part of the company, the man, because of his convictions, can't participate. And so he, at this time, is allowed to take off. He takes vacation for those days. And so he's out of the office. But his boss knows what's going on, and he knows that there is coming a day in which he may not be allowed to do that. What will it look like for you? We will need wisdom to honor God when we are given an, a, an invitation by a friend to attend his or her same-sex wedding. We will need wisdom from God how we will navigate our relationship with someone who insists that we use their preferred pronoun. We will need wisdom from God to know who and how to vote and when to vote. And for many, many situations. And because all of these situations will require wisdom, brothers and sisters, we must give each other grace. That is, how it looks like with someone may not be the exact same replica of what, what it looks like for you. We may, both stand in, uh, we may both stand in opposition to abortion. One person pickets and the other person doesn't. 
neither is righteous nor unrighteous. At the risk of stirring up controversy, let's consider a a recent controversy in, in churches across our land. Let's talk about the vaccine, shall we? It's on news all the time. Some of us got the vaccine, some of us did not. Some of us, because of our jobs, were required to get the vaccine, some not. Some were insistent that if they were required to get the vaccine, they would quit their jobs. They would be willing to be fired for this. And that's fine. Others of you counting the cost couldn't pay that. And so you took it. And some people in the media and some people in the church, they said, if you love someone, you are required to act this way. And others said, if you really trust God, and if you really have faith, and if you really don't want to be, if you're patriotic, then you won't get the vaccine. The issue of to vaccinate or not to vaccinate became the issue. Brothers and sisters, as we work and live in a world that requires so much wisdom, we need to be equally firm, equally dedicated to extending grace and mercy to one another. I am not saying this in rebuke to us over this controversy. I, I am immensely thankful for the unity of this church, that there has been grace given and extended to one another over these issues. We have strong opinions, right? I mean, we are shaped by a world. We live in, we have strong opinions about these things. That's okay. And you can be firm in your heart that the person who disagrees with you is absolutely wrong, but you better be more, you better show them more love than you do criticism. Using wisdom, we will come to different places in different situations in different circumstances. But we must be determined not to compromise what is true. Daniel chose, of all the things in his life, Daniel chose this thing. Because this was the thing that determined his loyalty, his beliefs. And if we are going to follow after Christ, we must know that he alone is the true wise one. And Christ, our Savior, through wisdom, provides redemption. Through wisdom, Christ lived sinlessly in this broken world. He obeyed the law. Through wisdom and determination, Christ said, not my will, but thine. Through wisdom, Christ chose the hour of his death, the place of his death. Through wisdom, Christ was silent when accused. Through wisdom, Christ conquers sin upon the cross for all who repent and trust in him. As great as Daniel is, as wise as he was, he is but a small picture of the great wise one, Christ Jesus, who through wisdom becomes our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, we have spent the vast majority, majority of our time together this morning thinking about Daniel, but Daniel chapter 1 really isn't about Daniel. There's another character in this story that plays a more prominent role from the very beginning all the way to the very end. See in verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That is, gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. 
And then in verse 9, we read again, now God brought, that's that same word back in verse 2, God gave Daniel favor and goodwill in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And then again later, we are going to see that it is God in his mercy who gives Daniel intelligence and skill and wisdom. Three times God is giving. He is is the one who is behind the scenes working. Two of these actions are positive. The first in verse 9, Daniel makes his request of the chief eunuch and rather than squelching him, rather than kicking him out of the program, rather than destroying him for even suggesting such a treasonous act, God gives favor. That is, God changed the heart of this man to be favorable to him. In verses 11 to 20, when the test is complete, we see that Daniel and his friends, they are healthier. Read with me, beginning with verse 14. So he consented, this is the steward, he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the, thus the steward took away their portion, that is, of these young men. He took away their meat and wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. I'm sure that made Daniel extremely popular with all the other men, right? And as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before King Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. That is, he found them better than all the other trainees, all the other people who were training for this. Daniel and his friends were far, far better. What we see is God working positively, first to give favor, to change the heart and the thinking of this man. God intercedes and he turns this man's opinion of Daniel. More than that, at the end of 10 days, Daniel and his friends, they they look healthier. They look better. And not only that, they are mentally sharper. They're wiser. And so then at the end of the three-year period, Daniel and his friends are exceedingly better than everyone else. And God has given them particular wisdom, particular skill, particular intelligence, particular To Daniel, that particular ability of interpreting dreams and visions. This is the sovereignty of God at work. He is at working for his people. But what do we do with that first action of God back in verse 2? Where God gave Jehoiakim, he gives Jerusalem into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Think with me, imagine for just a moment, all of the evil, all of the sin that is summed in that phrase, God gave. In this instance, God's act of giving Jerusalem into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar involves murder on the part of Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. Obscene acts. How many people were killed in Jerusalem? How many families torn apart? How much devastation was there? 
The temple is torn down. The articles are taken away. God himself is mocked. All of that is involved in God giving. And it will not simply, we cannot simply say that God is letting Nebuchadnezzar do this. He is letting Nebuchadnezzar use his free will or that God is simply permitting this to happen. He doesn't want it to happen, but he's permitting it to happen. He's allowing it to happen. As if he's stepping back and saying, I'm washing my hands of this. This just happened. It won't do. God is the subject of the verb. He is the one who is doing it. He is the one who is sovereign over it all. This is God's judgment against his people. This is not the last time that God will ordain terrible things to accomplish his good purposes and ends. He has done this again and again, and he will do it again throughout Scripture. He's doing this in our day as well. In fact, it is our confidence that this is exactly what God did at the cross in Christ Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus. Pilate acts corruptly and cowardly, condemns Jesus. The Roman soldiers beat the Son of God, stripping him, mocking him. The Jewish leaders and the crowds together cry out, crucify him, crucify him. There is no greater sin in the world than that of the murder of Christ Jesus, the Son of God. And yet we read in Acts 4.27, And 28, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They did to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The root of Daniel's courage, the root of his wisdom, was that though he was in an living as an exile in a hostile land, in a hostile country, in a hostile culture, that his God was still in control. Oh, his God may be mocked, but his God still reigned. Brothers and sisters, wherever we find ourselves, whatever may come, we may rest assured that we cannot wander where God does not reign. The source of Daniel's confidence and courage is in the sovereignty of God. What gave him that confidence and that courage to make this statement, to, to, not, to not eat the king's meat, to not drink the king's drink? We do not praise Daniel merely. We, we see Daniel's God his conviction that his God had not lost, that his God had not been, become weak and ineffectual. Daniel is living consistent with what he believes to be true. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and Daniel showcases what it looks like to be wise. The first step toward what Daniel comes to see, this is the first step in what Daniel will come to see and declare back in chapter 12, verse 3, that those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Because he reigns, you can rest confident knowing that he will hold you fast, knowing whatever, whatever cost 
you may have to pay to follow the Lord, it will be rewarded you 10,000 times. Our God's hand is not shortened, friend. He reigns. It's not the person in the White House. It's not the Supreme Court. It's not Congress. It's not some international body. Our God reigns. Trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us. We so often act as if you are not on the throne. We are driven to anger as if you are not on the throne. We allow our hearts to be weighed down with anxiety because we forget and fail to remember and to cling to the truth that you are on the throne. That all that is around us is according to your good plan, according to your good purposes. Oh God, give us confidence, give us faith, give us wisdom to live and honor you. We pray this in our wise Savior's name, Christ Jesus. Amen.